This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel in for John Dankosky. Tax liens aren't the sexiest topic, but for some property owners, they can mean the difference between keeping or losing their home. Today, where we live, we'll take a closer look at how these liens, and more specifically the sales of these liens, are affecting some of Connecticut's most financially vulnerable residents. It's the latest in our ongoing series with WMPR contributor Susan Campbell. Later this hour, we'll find out how some of Connecticut's wealthier towns are working to develop new affordable and mixed-income housing. We'll check in with municipal leaders and talk to policy experts, and we want to hear from you, too. Join the conversation, 860-275-7266. You can comment on our website, wmpr.org, slash where we live. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. And joining me in studio is Susan Campbell. She's a writer and Hartford Current columnist who's been covering housing and homelessness for WNPR. Always good to see you, Susan. Good morning, Lucy. So we know you've been reporting for some time on homelessness in the state of Connecticut. Tell us about the problem of tax liens. Well, this was something I think I knew in the back of my head, but I had no idea how prevalent it was that when someone falls behind on, say, their their taxes— um, or, or their mortgage, someone can put a lien on their property. If they fall behind on their mortgage, there are all kinds of programs that can potentially help them. If they fall behind on their taxes, they're often just left to float. And municipalities, mid-sized mu- municipalities in particular, like Hartford, mm-hmm. um, can sell those tax liens to a third party, which can then, they don't always, but they can then start foreclosure procedures. So in your story, you profiled a woman, Rosalind Cobb, is that mm-hmm. right? She owns a home on Enfield Street in Hartford. Tell us about her story. Um, I, I could probably throw that to to Rex Fowler better, okay. but this was a woman who fell behind on her mortgages, on right. her mortgage, excuse me, and her taxes. Is that correct? I'm looking at Rex so he can help me. Yeah, so uh, Rosalind Cobb uh, is a North End resident who uh, had had some... Um, uh, stresses in her life that resulted her in getting behind on her mortgage. She made some arrangements with her uh, mortgage lenders to try to keep current and keep her home. But in the process, uh, she did fall behind on her taxes. The city leaned her property, uh, sold the tax lien uh, on that to an outside investor. That outside investor, in turn, sold someone locally, and that local investor uh, aggressively pursued foreclosure on Miss Cobb's house. And that voice you're hearing is Rex Fowler. He's executive director of the Hartford Community Loan Fund. Thanks for coming in, Rex. Good to be here. And so um, since we introduced you, tell us about the Hartford Community Loan Fund. So the Hartford Community Loan Fund is what's called a Community Development Financial Institution, or CDFI. CDFIs are certified by the U.S. Treasury Department to provide financial services in uh, underserved communities across the country. Our target market is specifically the city of Hartford. Our mission is to provide and promote just and affordable financial services that benefit the low-wealth residents of Hartford. So we do that by providing loans ourselves, but we also get engaged in policy initiatives around issues like uh, tax lien sales that impact uh, the economic well-being of uh, Hartford residents. Did you see uh, the bulk of the people you're helping post-recession? Yeah, so in uh, 2007, uh, from what we've seen, the city started this policy of leaning uh, properties that had fallen behind on taxes. And so in the last, we think, seven years, the city has sold about 40 to $45 million in tax liens. We were contacted about three years ago by a North End resident who's actually a neighbor of mine, uh, a man named Butch Lewis, who sadly passed away last fall. 
Butch had lived in the North End for about 40 years, had paid off his mortgage, and like a lot of homeowners, his mortgage company had been paying his taxes for him. They'd escrowed uh, the tax portion of his payment. Uh, so it took him a couple of years to realize now it was his responsibility to go down to City Hall and pay his taxes. By the time he got down to City Hall, the city had already sold those tax liens. And after about a year or a couple of years later, uh, Butch called me and said a marshal had showed up on his front doorstep and had given him foreclosure papers. Uh, Butch didn't even know he had liens that were outstanding that were held by an outside investor. And by this point in time, because the tax liens accrue interest at 18% a year, and the tax lien investor has a first lien position on your property ahead of even your mortgage, uh, Butch was at, at danger of losing the property that he'd been in with his wife for over 40 years. So that's when we brought the matter in front of city council and the mayor and said, hey, let's look at the impact of these policies of selling the tax liens across the city. This is where we live. We're talking about tax liens and how they affect Connecticut's most vulnerable residents. Have you fallen behind on your property taxes? Is there a lien on your house? And how are you dealing with this? We want to hear from you, 860-275-7266 or where we live at WMPR.org. I want to go back to you, Rex. Um, you're telling us about Butch Lewis's story. So when the city sold the lien on his house to this third-party company, there was no notification to these residents this was happening? Well, there's supposed to be a notification, and that's one of our issues with the city is, um, you know, there there should be notifications before the lien is sold and then after the lien is sold by the tax lien investor should be communicating with the homeowner that now you have a lien on your house and we own that lien. Um, at times we know those communications are made and there are other times when homeowners are telling us that they receive no notifications. It's kind of hard to, to track that with the residents, what's actually happening in terms of communication. I want to take a call now. Uh, Robert from Hartford who wants to share an experience with the tax lien. Robert, thanks for calling in to where we live. Yes, good morning. Thanks thanks for having me. So you're a Hartford resident? Uh, yes, I am. Tell us your story. So my, my dad bought a property in the North End of Hartford in, in 1983. Um, he was able to pay the mortgage off uh, by 2005. Um, 2003, he was injured and, and stopped working. Um, so he fell behind on the taxes. Um, and they, and they, you know, they accrued pretty quickly. But in 2012, the back taxes were sold to a law firm um, in an amount of like $15,000. So in the next two years, he paid actually $15,000, but the balance had, had jumped to $30,000. So in that, during that time, taxes were still accruing with the city. So he entered a payment plan with the city um, and then fell behind with those as well. So the city subsequently sold those to the law firm in addition to the ones that they had already owned. And then the law firm, the law firm proceeded to start with uh, – um, and, you know, he had continued to pay, and it just seems like if, if he had had an arrangement with the city and the city kind of was working with him, all of these taxes would have been paid off. But because it went to the third entity, the third-party entity, you know, it just it, it became complicated, and before you know it, they were trying to foreclose on him. So did he ever get any notification from the city? We heard from Rex that there should be some notification that comes from the city before um, the lien is sold and then even after that this has happened so that these homeowners know, you know, their rights. So from what I understand, he did receive notification, but enough time had passed um, where he was past the window of opportunity for payment arrangements on some of the taxes. So, yeah, there were some notifications, but it seemed like the system was kind of, 
I don't, I don't know. It's not really defined if that makes any sense. And then what happened to the property? So luckily we were able to, to get a loan through the Harvard Community Loan Fund um, that paid off the back taxes and also gave us some additional money to rehab the house. Um, and now it is, it is becoming an uh, income-generating property for my dad. Um, I wanted to go back to you, Rex. Thank you, Robert, for telling us your story. I appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, if I wanted to go back to you, Rex, um, you know, we had talked about the city needs to notify uh, property owners before this happens. But isn't there another layer to the story? So once the third-party company has these liens and they're able to accrue at 18 percent, um, if if your nonprofit is not helping them, are they getting notifications from, say, these you know high-interest um, lenders who say, look, we know you may lose your home. We can help you. But that interest rate is even higher than 18 percent. Yeah, so that's a good question. Um, and what we've seen is – the greatest danger here is not that people wind up losing their homes. Some people do wind up losing their homes. But what typically happens is when the property owner, uh, when foreclosure is filed against a property owner, that's a public record. And what we've seen is there are what we call hard money lenders, or sometimes I call them vulture funds, because they're kind of flying overhead looking for the wounded to try to prey upon. And these hard money lenders find out that a property owner is in financial straits. They initiate contact with them and offer to provide them uh, a bailout loan to pay off the tax lien. Uh, but those loans are frequently at interest rates of anywhere from 15 to 25 percent. I had a neighbor who uh, I knew had a tax lien filed on uh, her house, and that lien had been sold by the city. And I contacted her grandson who lived with her just to make sure he was aware of what could happen with this tax lien. And, in fact, he was aware, and they'd already been approached by a hard money lender and had already taken out a loan at uh, about 20% interest to pay off that tax lien. We're talking to Rex Fowler. He's executive director of the Hartford Community Loan Fund. Also in studio with us is Susan Campbell, a writer, a Hartford Current columnist, and a WMPR contributor. Susan, so you had um, profiled uh, Rosalind Cobb. Uh, When we look at the city of Hartford, are there specific neighborhoods, specific people that you're seeing, you know, being victimized by this? I'm going to look like I'm throwing everything to Rex, (laughs) but in in this case in particular, he has the numbers. But I can tell you that, interestingly enough, the bulk of these uh, tax liens that get sold are in economically vulnerable neighborhoods, the North End. Um, You had some numbers of the pretty recent. Well, yeah, so we had um, actually uh, gotten some data from the city, and we mapped out where all of the properties with liens held by outside investors are located. And there's over a 1,000 properties that have liens held by outside investors in the city of Hartford. About 40% of those liens, uh, 40% of those properties are in the north end, so the neighborhoods of Northeast, Clay Arsenal, Upper Albany, and Blue Hills. What uh, we've then been able to do is we've drilled down further and looked at the properties that actually went through the foreclosure process. And the Connecticut Fair Housing Center, uh, Jeff uh, Gentis, was very helpful in helping us do this analysis. What we found from that analysis is that of those properties that went through foreclosure, 61% are in the north end of the city, so in those same four neighborhoods. So while the intent of the city's policy of selling tax liens, we don't think it's uh, meant to target uh, folks in specific neighborhoods, 
clearly the impact of the city's policy of selling these liens is having a, having a disproportionately negative impact on folks in the north end of Hartford. And let's talk about these third-party companies. I mean, who are they in the city? Who's the city of Hartford selling to? So the city enters into a contract each year. Uh, it'll be doing an RFP uh, probably next month uh, to select its uh, vendor that it'll contract with for the next fiscal year, which starts on July 1st. Currently, for the last couple of years, the city has been dealing with a Texas-based company called Propel Financial Services. Uh, Propel has made a big business out of uh, buying liens from municipalities across the country. Uh, again, their, their interest is not so much taking properties. It's on that 18% interest that they can generate as a return on these investments. It's interesting timing. You said that the city is going to have an RFP for um, a new company to take these liens over. We know that the city of Hartford is struggling like many cities. Um, on one hand, you know, they need uh, the taxes to provide services, but on the other hand, we're seeing you know, certain residents that are falling prey to these high interest um, loans uh, to, to make up the difference. So, I mean, what's the solution? You said you sat on a uh, tax lien task force for the city of Hartford? Yeah, so in, after, after Butch Lewis brought this to our attention, uh, Butch and I went in front of the council and the mayor and uh, sort of uh, tried to um, help the council see the impact of this policy. The mayor and the council in 2013 uh, appointed a tax lien task force uh, that I was uh, invited to sit in on. The tax, uh, the tax lien task force came up with some recommendations uh, that the council and the tax collector, to the tax collector's credit, he's uh, implemented a number of the recommendations that we propose. At the end of the day, it's a policy that's always going to do more harm, we think, than it does good. We understand that the city needs to collect as much as it can on the taxes that it's owed. So we understand the rationale behind the practice, but we think there are still some things that the city could do that would really lessen the negative impact on residents, especially in the communities that are already struggling. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchelin for John Dankosky. We're talking about tax liens and how they affect Connecticut's most vulnerable residents. We heard from one resident in Hartford whose father fell victim to this. What about you? Are you a city leader? Do you have a different perspective? We did reach out to the city of Hartford for this show. We did not hear back by the time of the broadcast. We'll be back shortly. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchelin for John Dankosky. We're talking about tax liens today and how they affect Connecticut's most vulnerable residents who then become in danger of losing their homes. In studio are Susan Campbell, a writer, Hartford Current columnist and WMPR contributor, and Rex Fowler, executive director of the Hartford Community Loan Fund. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. You can comment on our website, wmpr.org, or you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Joining us now is Jeff Gentis. He manages foreclosure prevention work at the Connecticut Fair Housing Center, and he co-supervises a foreclosure clinic at Yale Law School. Hi, Jeff. Hi, Lucy. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Tell us about the work you're doing at the Connecticut Fair Housing Center. A lot of the work that we end up doing at uh, the Fair Housing Center is we're between the law school's clinic and the Fair Housing Center, the only organizations in the state that do nonprofit representation and advocacy for homeowners facing foreclosure. 
so we speak to a lot of organizations like Rex's. We uh, we hold clinics. We run manuals for homeowners facing foreclosure. And then some of the worst cases, we actually do represent homeowners. Um, we also serve as, as the primary uh, advocates for homeowners facing foreclosure at the state legislature. So this hour, we focused on Hartford. But how are other cities and towns in Connecticut handling delinquent property taxes and, and selling these tax liens? It's been interesting. We knew about a few of the cities that were engaged in this, and then thanks to some of the work that we've been doing, some of the other towns have come out of the shadows. And we've seen that some of the other uh, fairly large, relatively large cities, Bridgeport, Danbury, and then some places like West Haven, uh, are pretty aggressive in selling off their tax liens. And we've also seen some cities, uh, or excuse me, some towns uh, have started to sell off sewer liens, which are you know, tend to be $200, $300 a year type bills. Um, but also accrue that same 18% interest that Rex referenced and are selling them off to uh, third-party investors. You mentioned these um, cities and towns that have come online uh, by selling liens. You know, when did that practice begin? Was it in the mid-2000s? You know, that's a good question. I, I, I think it's been going on in one way or another for um, at, at least 15, 20 years. Um, but as some municipalities have... Uh, have run into really cash flow issues and are really just looking for any way to stem budget holes. They start looking to tax liens. And then there's some tax collectors who are uh, are passionate about it. Uh, we've, we've met one who I called the Pied Piper of tax lien assignments and is really trying to uh, spread this spread the word to other tax collectors that they should be doing this. It makes things easier on, I think, administratively for the tax collectors, and it provides cash more quickly to the uh, to the cities and towns who, you know, frankly, are the ones who are supposed to be getting the benefit of the 18%, not the people they sell the liens to. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's it, it doesn't seem to be uh, diminishing. I wanted to go back to Susan Campbell, who did some reporting on this um, in the city of Hartford. You made a point uh, during the break that, you know, maybe the cities and towns are then getting the money that they need for services, but what is it doing to these individual neighborhoods? Exactly. And and I can completely understand. Everyone is operating on a deficit, and deficits Mm -hmm. can't be left alone. But when you go short-term and you raise money quickly by selling these tax liens, what a lot of municipalities aren't looking at is the long-term effect on neighborhoods, not just the individual homeowners, which can be catastrophic. But if you foreclose on a on a property and it sits there, then that the grass grows and the uh, property deteriorates, as does the value of the properties around that neighborhood. So you're basically draining blood out of a neighborhood to fix your tax or your your deficit woes. Before we get to a call, I wanted to go back to you, Jeff. So you're down in New Haven right now. So um, New Haven has the same challenges that cities like Hartford do. Um, what are they doing that's different? New Haven just handles the tax foreclosures themselves. And so you you don't fall behind as far when you go into foreclosure. It's easier to find bridge loans. It's easier to take advantage of um, revolving loan funds, easier to enter into repayment agreements with your city. And, and if you have issues in dealing with the city for whatever reason, you can turn to your alderman. Um, you can turn to elected officials and, and get a response more quickly. If you're sold off to a debt buyer, uh, you, you don't have that same point of contact. You don't have uh, the same level of access. And, and, and in turn, the debt buyer usually sits back and waits and lets that 18% run and run and run. And it's a lot harder to catch back up uh, with when your city has sold you off to, uh, to the debt buyer world. 
And Lucy, if I can just add, sure. I was uh, served on uh, Mayor Bronin's uh, committee that uh, made some recommendations on how the city of Hartford could better address blight. And we checked around at some different cities. We contacted folks in New Haven, and actually um, consistent with what Jeff was saying, uh, folks in New Haven said one of the reasons why they stopped selling tax liens was because they realized uh, when you sell liens, it inevitably increases blight in your neighborhoods because you've got someone from outside who is really uh, in the driver's seat on the, the fate of properties in your city. So one of their big motivations was, you know, just like Jeff was saying, we're going to handle these ourselves in a way that's much more uh, consistent with what we want to see for the future of our neighborhoods. You're listening to Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel in for John Dankosky. We're talking about the problem of tax liens, most specifically the when towns and cities are selling these liens to private companies who then ratchet up uh, the interest rates, and then these people are then either forced out of their homes or stuck in high interest loans to pay off their debt. I want to go to Martha from Waterbury who has a question. Hi, Martha. What's your question? Hi, thanks for taking my call. Um, I actually have a comment about the um, unbelievably complicated property tax collection um, system in the state of Connecticut. They're currently finishing up collecting the grand list of 2014, but we're in the year 2016, and we pay our taxes in arrears in Connecticut. And it's very complicated, and I believe that it takes advantage a little bit of the um, vulnerable who don't understand the system, especially people who, like you said in earlier in the program, don't have a mortgage and their taxes are not being paid by escrow anymore. Um, and I do title searching uh, for attorneys, and sometimes I do tax lien foreclosure searches. And a lot of times when I'm in the tax collector's office, taxpayers come in and ask questions. Most people do not understand the system. Um, I just was wondering if your guests have any comments on the potential to make the system um, more easily understandable for the homeowners, the taxpayers, so that they do not get into these um, situations in the future. All right, Martha, thank you for your call from Waterbury. I want to go down to you, Jeff, um, at the down in Yale right now. Um, tell us about, you know, how can we make the system less complicated for people in the state? Well, it's <laughs> we we weren't able to uh, we haven't tried to take on the entire um, property tax apparatus yet. I mean, one of the proposals that we had though this past session was to provide some some level of regulation around the third party buyers. Um, right now, these buyers not only um, are unregulated, but they actually enjoy some exemptions from consumer protection laws that. Uh, that municipalities uh, were the intended beneficiaries of. They, in other words, they, they step into the same shoes as municipalities, and so they're, they're not subject to uh, laws concerning unfair trade practices, for instance. And, and so we proposed, uh, worked with legislators to propose a bill that would uh, fix that, that would provide some basic protections like, hey, if you call the tax lien buyer and you ask, how much do I owe, they have to get back to you. Uh, or when they foreclose on you, um, particularly because we have some questions about the relationships between the attorneys who handle tax lien foreclosures and the tax lien investors themselves. We put some caps on the fees that the attorneys can charge. We put a, requ um, a requirement in that they evaluate the homeowner for uh, in good faith to see if the homeowner could possibly repay the loan over a two-year period. And then the state does have a, a program through the Connecticut Housing Finance Authority 
that provides loans to people who are behind on their mortgage, but who for by virtue of their credit history could show that they could pay it back. And it allows the people who have mortgages to catch up on their taxes um, and their condo fees, uh, coincidentally. And uh, we we look to expand that program to people who don't always have, uh, who don't have mortgages and yet are behind on their taxes. And so we'd, we'd put a bill forward that would help you know, maybe not address all the communication issues, but would provide some protections for homeowners. Yeah, we're almost out of time for this segment, but I want to go back to Rex. Again, you sat on the city of Hartford's task force looking at um, liens and other issues. I mean, other ways to help residents throughout the state um, figure out their system? Yeah, so one thing we're seeing in some other communities, and Rhode Island was one that we looked at specifically where uh, the state actually purchases the liens through their housing finance authority, and they try to work with the property owners to come up with a repayment plan for those delinquent taxes. But more importantly, what we saw that they've been doing is they provide foreclosure prevention counseling. So they provide a high degree of counseling assistance to folks, just like your caller from Waterbury mentioned. It can be a really confusing process. And so all the foreclosure prevention assistance that's out there now is predominantly around mortgage foreclosure prevention there's not really resources allocated toward tax lien foreclosure prevention. So we think, uh, you know, one idea for the city or for the state would be to allocate some resources to be able to provide foreclosure prevention around tax lien foreclosures that are happening. Um, one real quick quick uh, question or comment before we go to break. And, you know, when we look at the General Assembly, these lawmakers are beholden to the towns that they represent. I can't imagine that municipal leaders want the state to, to meddle in how they can maybe get their revenue stream if they're selling to third-party companies so that at least they're getting something back. Yeah, and again, I don't think the effort is uh, to choke off the stream of funds into the cities. I mean, the cities should be collecting 100% of what uh, the taxes that they're owed. What we're trying to do is focus on minimizing the negative impact of these tax lien sales, and we think there's a number of things the city can do uh, toward that end. Thank you, Rex Fowler, Executive Director of the Hartford Community Loan Fund, in studio with us. Also, Jeff Gentis manages foreclosure prevention work at the Connecticut Fair Housing Center. Thanks for coming on. And Susan Campbell, always a pleasure to see you. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel, in for John Dankosky. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel, in for John Dankosky. Coming up tomorrow, Connecticut Governor Dana Malloy is back in studio to talk about the state's budget challenges, the latest layoffs, and other issues facing the state. You don't want to miss it. And then you can call in with your questions and comments for the governor live. That's Friday on Where We Live. Today, we're focusing on housing issues in the state. You can join the conversation. Comment on our website, WNPR.org, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. In studio with me now is Katie Schaefer. She's Deputy Policy Director at the Partnership for Strong Communities. And she's here to tell us more about efforts around the state to create more affordable housing. Hi, Katie. Hi. Thanks for having me. Thank you. So when we think about affordable housing, often it's what are we doing in cities historically? So can you talk about, you know, why that was and then the shift that we're seeing now? Sure. Well, well, housing development, like a lot of development, is not only a response to market forces, supply and demand, but also to specific town-level conditions. So while demographics and, dem- and demand might change, mm-hmm. often the zoning and infrastructure and the community engagement that's needed to facilitate development might not be in place. So in Connecticut, where most of our towns built the bulk of their housing from 1970 on, that was for the boomer population and their growing families. 
So these became our bedroom communities and resulted in a housing landscape that was skewed primarily towards single family homes. And then zoning and other practices ensured that. Cities, however, historically had, have always had a lot of multifamily and affordable housing because that's where our factories were and the mm -hmm. factories needed to provide housing for their workers. They had the infrastructure to allow for the density. There was little community opposition. The land was less expensive, so that's where development was most feasible. But today, many towns are realizing that they need to provide more affordable housing choices. The demographics have so dramatically shifted. And the demands coming from working families suffering under stagnant wages, young professionals entering the job market saddled with education debt, and seniors seeking to downsize but with minimal savings. So these groups need smaller, affordable housing options proximate to an employment services, healthy food, and transit. You know, 153 of our 169 towns are projected to see a decrease in their school age enrollment by 2025. So towns need to tackle how are they going to adapt to that head on. So how's the Partnership for Strong Communities working with these towns, um, these wealthier towns, to develop this kind of housing? Well, proactive housing development outside of cities was really catalyzed by the launch of the state's incentive housing program almost a decade ago. And through this program, together with the Partnership's Home Connecticut campaign, towns examined their housing stock and their changing population alongside the existing zoning regulations to determine what kind of housing was needed, what it should look like, where it's best suited in town. Leaders and residents started to realize that creating more housing choices was in their interest. The demand was not nebulous, but rather was coming from their own residents who were struggling to get by, and it was very much needed to attract uh, the town's next generation. So over 40% of Connecticut's towns have participated in this program, and along the way, they they've debunked a lot of the myths surrounding affordable housing. What is it? Who needs it? And perceptions around effects on crime, mm -hmm. property values, and demands on services in schools. And name some of those towns that you're talking about specifically. Sure. And we've had um, events throughout the year, mm -hmm. and especially last month, we featured five towns that have made great progress and are at various stages in the process. So Fairfield recently broke ground on a 101-unit mixed-income, mixed-use project right by the train station. Guilford's identified sites for development. Simsbury, Brookfield, South Windsor, Stonington, Westbrook, Barkhamsett. But the, but the point that I like to highlight is that it's not just about one development. It's about developing a sustainable approach that consistently and proactively encourages housing affordability and diversifies choice in all, all housing considered. So I'll give you an option, an example. In 2012, Ferry Crossing opened in Old Saybrook. That was a 16-unit rental development um, it was located on a bus route in a residential neighborhood, and through its success, so its physical design, mm -hmm. its location, professional management, today, a 186-unit project is currently under construction right next to the Shoreline East train station, which includes an affordable set-aside, requires no public subsidy, and that's really the gold standard. Mm -hmm. um, we're actually having an event next Monday, a multifamily speed dating event, to bring together towns with development across professionals from across the region. Okay, so we'll get to that event um, soon. But on the phone right now is one of those towns you mentioned, uh, the leader of the town of Newtown, Pat Lodra, the town selectman. Thanks for calling in, Pat. Well, good morning, and thank you for including me. So tell us about what Newtown's been doing to you know, create affordable and mixed-income homes, and then how's, how has this been embraced by your residents? 
Uh, well, our, our journey really started back in 2007-8 when we decided to do uh, a build-out study. Uh, we're a large community in terms of space. We are 60 square miles. Uh, knowing that we have still about 25% of our land to be developed that is available for development, uh, we thought, well, let's do a build-out study to see what, what it is that we could look like uh, once all of our uh, developable land was was used. Uh, at the same time, we started to collect more demographic information, not just about land use, but also about who are our people and what what are the changes that we're seeing as our population uh, shifts, uh, the graying of our nation and our state, certainly in our community, was a prime um, precipitator to really developing a, a good, robust body of information. And then, of course, we participated in the Connecticut Home Study in 2010. And so all of this information uh, began to um, influence our decisions and our choices. Uh, so we began to educate the community, and that's critically important is bring the community into the conversation in ways that are, for me, it's incremental so that you have bite-sized chunks of information that can be understood and applied, and then bring also into the conversation uh, those folks that have on-the-ground knowledge and experience. So. We started with our Planning and Zoning Commission having meetings with contractors, with lenders, with developers, uh, with all of those persons who understand the market forces uh, in a more personal and real way. Uh, to ask them what kinds of zoning changes should we make that that makes sense given the way we're moving demographically and what applies in the culture and community of a, of a place like Newtown. Uh, so they were very influential. So we started to make some zoning policy changes at the same time having those very public conversations about directionally this is where we, we need to head. We also are one of those communities that is seeing a decline in school enrollment and an increase in our elderly population. So, and at the same time, we're kind of watching this millennial uh, population that we very much want. We want to hold on to all of our residents and be a community where they mm -hmm. can all thrive. But our housing choices were not sufficient to meet those needs. So we need to better understand the lifestyle choices of millennials. We need to understand that the four-bedroom, 4,000-square-foot, two-acre uh, uh, housing setup is not necessarily going to be attractive to our future generations. And if we're going to grow, and you know, a community in terms of its economic viability has to continue to grow and develop, uh, or we are moving backwards. So, so we know that if we're going to continue to grow and attract commerce, attract uh, folks, uh, you know, to either remain or come to our town, that we have to have housing options that speak to their lifestyle choices and their economic uh, uh, status. So, so we slowly are, are generating uh, projects. We have uh, the the conversation has been very healthy in our community about. Uh, about uh, increasing density. We, we have new two viable projects that are in the pipeline now. So I think there is a, um, philosophically, I, I think we are there. I think our residents understand uh, that we, uh, we need to look differently uh, at who we are and how to use our land. And we welcome those changes, that we will be a more vibrant, richer, culturally richer community when we are diverse. Um, so we're, we're moving in that direction. We have the same 
conversations that, uh, careful conversations, but very healthy conversations that persons understand uh, their own worry that their home values or land values might be negatively impacted by increasing density in their area. So these are very human and natural responses, and I welcome um, lifting the lid on those and helping people understand there's an economic positive outcome uh, to, you know, to creating lifestyle situations that respond uh, appropriately to a population, and that does include greater density in some very clear ways that can fit within the culture of our community. We also have those conversations about traffic, so so they're very normal conversations that would um, be associated with any development project. So I think it's a very healthy shift in our understanding of who we are as a people. So, Selectwoman uh, Lodra, if I could ask, I was speaking specifically to a Newtown resident the other day, and he mentioned the saga of the old Fairfield Hills State Pop Hospital property in your town, mm-hmm. um, and nothing's been developed over the years now that it's owned by the town. So tell me, is this a, a particular area that residents could see affordable and mixed-income housing? You know, I, Frank, you know, I can only speak from a personal perspective on that. That that issue has been looked at several times, uh, and the the popular our community does not support the idea that Fairfield, the Fairfield Hills campus would be developed with housing uh, of any sort. Um, so Fairfield Hills has become, for our community, the uh, social, civic, recreational, cultural center of our community. So um, it is not true that it hasn't been developed. Mm-hmm. We have the Newtown Youth Academy. The community center is going to be here. We have a new ambulance, a beautiful EMS uh, building. We have our, you know, uh, uh, the parent connection building is being developed. So, so um, what hasn't happened is that there has not been housing. Mm-hmm. And there has not been commerce. Uh, so we continue to pursue appropriate commercial development here, but this area has not been identified or has not been accepted as a potential location for uh, housing development because our residents are using this space. Uh, we have wonderful walking trails and biking trails, and so the residents have. Uh, they've grown accustomed to this space being their recreational, civic, social center. So, but that doesn't mean that there shouldn't be housing development, affordable housing development, you know, workforce development, especially in other corners of our community or other places. And we certainly have many other locations where this ho- sort of housing development uh, is, is welcomed and should be should be considered. The two projects that we have in the pipeline, one is in Sandy Hook and the other one is in Hollyville. You know, as I said, we're a very large community in terms of space. So we we develop in terms of neighborhoods. So we have five neighborhoods that Mm -hmm. we develop. So the Hollyville project, for example, has 180 units, 36 of which are affordable. And that, that's in the pipeline, been approved. Uh, the importance of that project is that it's right near an intersection for Route 84. Mm-hmm. So it's at exit 9. So, so we, we need to be smart about where we locate housing so that transport, you know, transportation is, is available to people uh, and, and that the uh, location is near some other commerce and near, you know, also supports commercial development of commercial districts. Mm-hmm. Sandy Hook is one of those small commercial villages so uh, the project that is identified for that area is a smaller project. It's 65 units, 
with 13 affordable, uh, but it's also going to be in a walkable, bikeable environment because it's a small village mm-hmm. with commerce. So um, we need to locate these uh, projects where they can survive and thrive mm-hmm. and be welcomed and add to, you know, be value added to who we are as a community. So, and, um, so that's yeah. that's kind of how we are looking mm-hmm. at this this challenge. Well, I want to thank you for your perspective, uh, first select woman of Newtown, Pat Lodra, uh, who called into where we live. I want to go back to Katie Schaefer. We just have two minutes, so tell me how uh, this collaboration has maybe changed, um, maybe past adversarial relationships between towns and cities and developers and what's how are you moving forward with this event on Monday well you know it's taken over half a century of land use practices to get to this point but in a relatively short amount of time we've made a lot of progress showing towns that there's a way to provide more housing choices in town while respecting towns character you know housing is the nexus of municipal health we believe so towns need to think about housing the way they do uh, other functions like public safety and recreation as the first selectman said local merchants need feet on the street Providing housing near transit reduces dependence on cars, lessening traffic and pollution. Housing choice enables the next generation of families to settle here in Connecticut as opposed to seeking affordable housing elsewhere. So it's promising to take a step back and realize that while we're not at a tipping point, we have reason to be hopeful. And tell us about that event on Monday. Exciting. 30 seconds. Monday, May 5th. Uh, Monday, April 25th at the Lyceum 227 uh, Lawrence Street in Hartford, 1 to 3 p.m. Please call our office to RSVP. All right, Katie Schaefer, thank you so much. The time is short. Deputy Policy Director at the Partnership for Strong Communities. You've been listening to Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel in for John Dankosky. Don't forget, tomorrow, Connecticut Governor Daniel Malloy. And now I want to take you to a couple of my colleagues who will tell you if you love and want to support WMPR and Where We Live, there's an easy way to do that. Contribute. <laughs>